Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. And it is the first week of June when we're recording this, which means that we're coming to the end of the Supreme Court's 2018 term. Yes, 2018. I didn't get that wrong. So we're starting to enter the flood season, or we're probably actually in deep in the flood season, where we're going to get a whole bunch of cases. We have 27 more opinions expected from the court before it wraps up, which right now is scheduled to happen on June 24th. But of course, they could push it back a couple of days. So So. let's talk about what we got. We got four opinions. We Um, We also got some grants from the court, right? Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about these amazing grants? Sure. I'll run through them real quick. We got three grants on Monday. The first one is Allen against Cooper, and that's a case involving copyright and state sovereign immunity. And the issue there is whether it's constitutional for Congress to pass a law undoing the state immunity for copyright infringement suits. You have totally buried the lead here, Jordan. What's that? What is this case about? What? Are you asking me? <laughs> okay, go on. Go. Okay, going. I think I'm getting to what you're... <laughs> so Frederick Allen is a videographer, and he took footage of the pirate Blackbeard's flagship, the Queen Anne's Revenge. There we go. Now which sank going. off the North Carolina coast. That's what you're looking for? Definitely. All I right. mean, you led with copyrights and state sovereign immunity. Yeah, there's you know there's a big payoff at the end of it for our, our true listeners. All right, go ahead. Go so ahead. what happened was... Allen sued the state for copyright violations for using his footage, and now the issue in front of the Supreme Court for next term is whether he can sue the state or whether states are immune from these copyright suits just like they're immune in other areas of the law. So that was the first grant. And the second one is Retirement Plans Committee of IBM against Jander. And this one involves ERISA, another fun one, and that's the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And that's a case that stems from from a fight over IBM stock in the company's 401k plan after the stock price dropped. And so the justices are going to look at the standard that plaintiffs need to meet in suits against the fiduciary running the plan. You got that? I got. I do. I got it. This is like that Dudenhofer follow-up, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's what I remember about the case is that it's a Dudenhofer follow-up. Right. And what do you mean by that? For, <laughs> well, I mean, I know. Just, you know, <laughs> just, just so everyone listeners. else knows. It's yeah. a follow-up to a case. Um, I think it was the respondents whose name was Dudenhofer, and I totally forgot the petitioner's name. But it's just a follow-up to a case the court heard a couple of terms ago, which has stuck with me for obvious reasons. All right. Well, that's fun. And so the third and final grant is another case involving what standard to apply. And in this one, it's a criminal case about what standard court Courts should apply when reviewing certain sentencing appeals and what defense lawyers need to do at the trial court level to trigger a more favorable standard of review on appeal. And so that's the grants. And that's my story. I'm sticking to it. (laughs) So those are all going to be heard next term during the 2019 term, which starts in October. First, we got to get through the remaining opinions for the 2018 term. Uh, The court made a dent in that with four opinions, as I mentioned earlier. And one of these opinions 
was the 11th 5-4 to four decision uh, so far in the term. I imagine we'll be getting some more. As, yeah. um, as we close up, we, we tend to get kind of the most controversial and most difficult cases at the end of the term. Um, so we'll get more of those. But one of the interesting things about this 5-4 decision and some of the other 5-4 decisions that we've been seeing recently are the vote lineups, right? They haven't been voting, they haven't been lining up along um, purely ideological lines, right? So we saw last week it was Justice Thomas who crossed over to join the liberals in a 5-4 victory. The week before that, it was Justice Gorsuch. The week before that, it was Justice Kavanaugh. So who is it this week? This week, it was the notorious RBG heading over to the conservative side to hand the government a win in a pretty technical criminal case involving supervised release. And so that was the latest uh, 5-4 decision. Now, in order for it to be a 5-4 decision with Justice Ginsburg crossing over and joining the conservatives, one of the conservatives had to cross over too, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yes. Um, That's one way to put it. Uh, (laughs) Gorsuch was in the dissent. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'll start by saying who wrote the opinion. Uh, Uh, Details, details. Okay. So Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion. And so in addition to Justice Ginsburg joining, it was the Chief Justice and Alito and Kavanaugh. And Sotomayor wrote the dissent. She was joined by Breyer and Kagan and also Justice Gorsuch. And so that you could say is the crossover, although I think it might be not as surprising maybe as Ginsburg joining the majority, the fact that Gorsuch joined the dissent in favor of a criminal defendant, just because that's sort of, you know, in line with his style so far, at least in non-death penalty cases, to kind of see eye to eye with Justice Sotomayor on some of these criminal issues, definitely not all of them. Right. We were chatting about, um, at this point, it seems like in these kinds of cases, these kinds of criminal cases um, that are really, it will be surprising when Justice Gorsuch doesn't join um, the more liberal bloc in in the same way that I think we'll be surprised if he doesn't join them um, in tribal cases as well. Exactly. And so, you're right. Yeah. So it's like, at what point is, you know, is it a crossover for him going the other way? Right. So I could talk a a little bit about what actually happened in this case. It's um, it's a bit of, you know, it involves time and dates and stuff like that. But I could try and make it quick. Mm, You're not really good at that, though. I know. So just because everyone's dying to know (laughs) by now, because if I say the holding, which is pretrial detention, later credited as time served for a new conviction is, quote unquote, imprisonment in connection with a conviction. Oh, oh, and thus tolls the supervised release term Mm -hmm. under Section 3624 sub E, right? Even if the court must make the tolling calculation after learning whether the time will be credited, you say, well, that's great. Yeah, I totally know what that that means. So, <laughs> okay, fine. Give it to us. Okay, you sitting down? I'm not even going to say everything. This is just so you get the gist of it. So this guy Jason Mont, he's had some trouble with um, the law uh, in terms <laughs> of uh, violating it. So you af- are going to go just summary, huh? I yeah. like it. Okay, yeah. go. So after he was released from the story, even starts, you know, not even at the beginning. After he was released. Uh, from prison on a federal conviction, he had to serve a five-year supervised release term. And uh, during that time, he actually did not do too well on supervised release either. He racked up some failed drug tests and new state charges, and he was picked up on new state charges still during this five-year term, and he was detained pre-trial in the state system. He was eventually sentenced to more prison time in the state system, and the state judge credited the approximately 10 
10 months he was held before the case was resolved as time served. So he credited him with, with time served there. Where it gets tricky, though, is that the state sentence came down after his five-year supervised release term on the federal level was set to expire. But the federal judge nonetheless revoked Mont's supervised release and sentenced him to yet more federal time that Mont's going to have to serve consecutive to his state time, which Mont is currently serving. He's currently being held in the state. And so Mont's argument on appeal was that the federal judge didn't have jurisdiction over him because his five-year supervised release term was over at the point that the federal judge found that he violated it. But the government argued that the supervised release term was told Mm -hmm. or paused during that time that Mont was credited with time served for when he was held in pretrial detention before his state conviction. And so the majority opinion by Justice Thomas, which Justice Ginsburg joined, agreed with the government. So Mont is still on the hook for that supervised release violation in the federal system. And Justice Sotomayor's dissent, which Justice Gorsuch joined, basically said the majority opinion uh, makes no sense and is unfair, is going to create all types of uncertainty. And so that's the latest 5-4 case. All right. A little technical, but I imagine I think you're all happy for having listened to that now. <laughs> Let's anyway. not take a vote. Let's not take a vote. Yeah. Yeah. That might might be a split one. Maybe some crossovers. <laughs> well, the next opinion that we got it was actually a unanimous opinion, this one by Justice Ginsburg, and this was in Fort Bend County versus Davis. This was actually a pretty quick turnaround um, mm-hmm. for Justice Ginsburg, who is a blazing fast writer. Rapid uh, Ruth. Rapid As you called her. As I did. And because it was argued April 22nd. And in this case, uh, the court confronted workplace discrimination. And it's part of the court's ongoing quest to sort out what rules are really jurisdictional, meaning that they cannot ever be waived, and what rules are just um, claims processing rules, that is, rules that can be forfeited or waived um, during litigation. Here, the unanimous court said that the Title VII's requirement that you first file a case with the EEOC so that they can get involved in the litigation or decide not to is not a jurisdictional rule, um, but is something that can be waived uh, during litigation or forfeited. Um, So that's what they said. I think, you know, one really interesting thing about this case, in addition to it being uh, good for individuals who are pressing, you know, workplace discrimination claims, Mm is that this is that case that involved appellate Twitter advocates. Right, um, right. And it's just really nice to see, you know, sometimes I dread going on Twitter because it's... Twitter? Yeah, because it's Twitter. But it's lovely to go on and see uh, the appellate Twitter community. So here we have uh, Rafi Malconian, uh, who got the 9-0 victory here. And it was just fun to watch him as he was preparing for his oral argument. This was his first high court argument. Um, He kind of laid out the steps that he followed. And it was great to see a lot of the support that he got. But also at the end, you know, once the 9-0 decision came out, uh, we saw Sean Murata, who was actually with the firm who was opposing uh, Malconian, sent out a tweet that said, you know, congratulations. It's really nice to have someone like you on the other side. And just thought that was, yeah, that's like the epitome of appellate Twitter, right? Yeah. Yeah, My saving grace on on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, what else? What did we get next? We got a bankruptcy bankruptcy case, right? Right. What was the vote in this one? This one was unanimous. unanimous. This right. one's a unanimous opinion by Justice Breyer. And so, like you said, this is a bankruptcy case, and it involves when courts can hold creditors in civil contempt for violating discharge orders. So discharge orders are what happens at the conclusion of bankruptcy proceedings when the bankruptcy court usually enters what's called a discharge order, which releases the debtor from pre-bankruptcy debts, and it bars creditors from attempting to collect any debts that are covered by the order. And so in this case, the question was when courts can hold creditors in contempt for trying to collect debts in violation of the discharge order, what standard to apply? And that unanimous opinion by Breyer said the standard is that if the creditor can be held in contempt, if there's no fair ground of doubt as to whether the order barred the creditor's conduct. And that's that. <laughs> well, uh, creditors, um, there you go. This was also a quick turnaround, right? This one was April, argued April 24th. So we're going to have to come up with some like rapid Ruth equivalent for Briar. What starts with a B? I don't know. What do you think? Busting? Bubbling? Bursting? I like brisk. Brisk? That's good. That's brisk, baby. Brisk Briar. All right. That's well. Briar, baby. New iced tea commercial. <laughs> See him dressed up as that thing. Anyway. Now I'm going to be picturing him as the Kool-Aid man, I think. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, the final opinion that we got was um, Azar versus Alina Health Services. And this had an interesting vote lineup, too. Um, oh. It was seven to one. But for all intents and purposes, it was eight to one. I'm confused. Well, in this case, uh, Justice Kavanaugh was recused, and that's because he wrote the majority opinion uh. below while he was on the D.C. Circuit. Here, the Supreme Court affirms um, Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, and what's at issue is a change to reimbursement rates uh, to hospitals who service low-income patients for under Medicare. And the question was if that change is valid, given that the agency didn't undergo notice and comment. And the Supreme Court says in this 7-0 or 7-1 or, or 8-1 opinion um, that they must have undergone notice and comment rulemaking because it changed a substantive legal standard. So, so who's the go. one? Oh, Briss Breyer. Wow. Yeah. The Kool-Aid man himself. He's knocking down the Medicaid doors. All right. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man is that it well that's it for the opinions um but we had a really interesting chat with uh justice thomas that was at the supreme court via the supreme court historical society which is available on c-span which is pretty interesting you watched it right jordan i did um along with you know the rest of the people that can make it to the court it's nice to see some some cameras get in there and you know no one uh burn their eyes when they looked in or turned to stone or burst into flames or anything like that and didn't make the nightly news or, or anything like that. Maybe that's why they waited to put it on at 10, although they could just put it on, you know, the next night. But anyway, yeah, I watched it. It was fascinating. I mean, Justice Thomas has an incredible life story. It has to be, you know, the most interesting of any justice or at least is up there on the current court, I would think. Yeah, the questions were tied very closely to his book, uh, My Grandfather's Son, which kind of tells his childhood growing up in or in, in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And it was great to hear him talk about his life. He also chatted about, you know, when he travels on the summer, him and his wife famously roll around the country in an in a big RV. And good times in a 
into flyover country, as he said. That's where he likes to go. Yeah, he likes to go to flyover country, meet real people. Uh, he said him and his wife went to 23 states last summer. Wow. It was pretty good. Um, but one of the questions was about whether or not he ever gets recognized. And there were some funny stories. Yeah, about, it was good. Yeah. He's a good storyteller. It's nice to, to listen to him. He's a very good storyteller. But he also chatted a little bit about court procedure, about you know what he looks for in clerks and why he doesn't ask questions and even some cameras in the courtroom. So right. Highly recommend the... Uh, Which he didn't seem to like. No, no. You know, he's he was saying, you know, something that we've heard a lot is that, you know, camera in the room changes the dynamic. Although at the same time, he did not seem to appreciate what's written about the court and himself and seemed to say that if people could, you know, see it instead of read what's written about it, they maybe get more of an appreciation for the court. But if that's true, that's difficult to do if we're not going to have cameras in the court. So you got to pick your poison, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, near the end, you know, um, the question was, what do you really want people to know about the court? What do you think that they should they should be thinking of when they think about the Supreme Court? And Justice Thomas's answer was that, you know, it's an institution made up of people. And, and I totally agree that we focus a lot on, you know, kind of these um, the effects of these cases and partisanship and ideology. But it's hard to uh, tell a story of people if all you ever see of them is their work um, on the bench and through their opinions. Right. Um, you know, the, the justices aren't great about uh, letting it be known when they're going to be speaking at other events. And it's often they're at law schools, which, you know, not all news outlets are really tuned into. So I, I totally agree with, with Justice Thomas that we should, you know, tell their stories a lot. I think it's Justice Thomas's story is very compelling and I think it would be, you know, wonderful for and, and inspiring for a lot of people to know about. But And probably surprising to a lot of people who maybe just, you know, sort of casually follow decisions to see sort of where he's at, you know, mm-hmm. now ideologically some things, you know, come up that are maybe surprising, almost kind of the opposite in his background from where, at least even as he describes himself as a a younger person, so. Yeah, yeah. What was that? He was talking about why he went to Yale instead of Harvard, and it was because Harvard was way too conservative for him. Yeah. So it's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it would almost, it almost, you know, is a joke in retrospect, but he was serious. Oh, yeah, he's serious. Well, and he lays it out in his book, which is a fabulous read, recommended to anyone. Or you could just watch the C-SPAN clip. Yeah, but that's all you'll see of the court. You won't get to see the arguments because then, you know, we'd all make fun of the justices and and hurt their feelings on the news. Well, if you don't show them on TV, then there's no way for, you know, politicians or anyone to politicize the court. So thankfully that's not (laughs) happening. But if you were to televise the arguments, then... Oh, man. Gosh. Yeah. Golly. Be seen as a political institution, probably. Shudder the thought. Wow. Now, we'll be back with another episode next week um, where we'll run down all of the cases that we get from now until then. And until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Oh, yeah. Hey, I'm Adam Allington. I'm the host of a new show from Bloomberg Environment called The Business of Bees. 
Here's what you need to know about it. We travel around the country talking to people at every corner of the honeybee ecosystem. This is the largest managed pollination event on Earth. In fact, commercial beekeeping is more important to farming than ever before. But bees are also under threat from pesticides and invasive pests and mysterious diseases. It's sort of like Christmas when you go to the hive in December and you open the lid. You just hope somebody's home. If you're interested in bees too, I think you might like the show. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.